optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now it is seen a perfect time. I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com slash TFS. TFS. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, boys and girls. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is my job to deconstruct world-class performers, whether they are chess prodigies, military strategists, former generals, entertainment icons, athletes, or otherwise. And this episode, I am speaking with a friend I hadn't caught up with in a very, very long time, Joshua Skeens. And that was my dog yawning in the background, otherwise known as Josh Skeens, Skeen, depending on who you ask, S-K-E-N-E-S, Instagram, at J. Skeens, Skeens, has become famous for his use of fire. As chef owner of Saison in San Francisco, which has three Michelin stars, one of the very first restaurants ever in San Francisco to receive three Michelin stars, he has classical training, which of course you would expect, and loves his high-end Japanese Nenohi knives, check them out, but nothing quite captures his imagination like the open flame. The back of his business card sports three words, stark on its ivory stock, play with fire. That's what the back of his business card says. And in this episode, we explore three of his obsessions, simplicity, food, and the martial arts. We became friends first 
during collaboration for The 4-Hour Chef, where he taught me about all sorts of incredible things. And this was a long overdue catch-up over lots of different types of tea. So I hope you very much enjoy it. And if you have not yet checked out 5 Bullet Friday, every Friday I sent out a free short email, 5 bullets of the coolest things that I have found, discovered, uncovered that week, then you should check it out. It is free and has uh, 70 plus percent open rate, so people are loving it. It is found at 4hourworkweek.com forward slash Friday, all spelled out, 4hourworkweek.com forward slash Friday. And without further ado, here is Joshua Skeins. Joshua, sir, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks it is for having me. It's it nice has be been here. so long since we actually hung out. Yeah, yeah, it's been too long. Uh, and, and in fact, it's been probably uh, what five years, really? Probably that we've yeah. actually spent yeah. any sit down time together because the way we connected originally with the when I was doing research for the Four Hour Chef and visiting the the older location of Saison. Uh, brings back a lot of memories. And before I get to that, though, I want to know, do you still have, what does the back of your business card currently say? Uh, I haven't picked up a business card in like four years. Um, so maybe I got the older version. Yeah, no, I, I think it used to, I think the one you're talking about used to say play with fire. Play with fire. Play with fire was the old one. That was some, uh, one of the guys who does, his name's Jim Ailes. Really, really, you know, amazing creative designer. He does the, all the stuff for the Monterey Bay Aquarium. Uh, and he thought we should write play with fire on the back because that's what we do. And, uh, the, at the, we're going to get into a number of different facets of, uh, our shared interests. Of course, we're sitting in my house. It's filled with J- Japanophile paraphernalia everywhere, saddles and armor and whatnot. And at the completely different from my house, completely, <laughs> <laughs> but at the first location that I visited of your restaurant, you had a wooden man. Yeah. Right there, about yeah. I would say what fifteen feet from where you did from all, where you seat people, yeah, yeah, from where you seat people. <laughs> uh, we used to we used to throw a uh, like a, a blanket, like a little cashmere blanket, on just covered up from the guests. <laughs> but you know, we then we started un- leaving it uncovered, and 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 you know, it's very interesting to see people's reactions. Uh, they, they they loved it. So the the martial arts and the cooking seem to go back a long way. Uh, what are your earliest memories of either? Well, martial arts, I mean, that, that, I've been doing that for as long as I can stand. So I don't, I don't, you know, my earliest memories are, you know, like four years old in the backyard, you know, my friends kicking me or something in the stomach. I don't know if we've got an argument. Uh, but, uh, but in, in cooking, it's kind of the same way. I don't know. You know, there was really no, um, there's no direct, uh, path to, um, starting cooking you know I, I have pictures of me when i had uh when i was probably i don't know four with uh, a little chef's hat on floppy chef boyer d hat and uh, mud pies so it, it was always something that was um maybe of interest to me and, and i can't you know this is this is a, a super common question i'm sure you know mm-hmm. and, and i can never answer it really properly because i just don't i have no idea it just it was just always there but it was it was ever present i mean in the sense that you grew up in florida correct yeah I, mean, I think it's just an interest, right? Uh, I, just you're drawn. We're drawn to things as humans sometimes, and that that happened to be something I was drawn to. Mm-hmm. When were you formally introduced to a, a specific martial art? Uh, I think I was uh, six or so, uh, and that was uh, Tang Soo Do. No yeah, kidding. I'm down in Florida. Yeah, 
Yeah, and I and I started with Tang Sudo, and uh, uh, you know my parents got me into it. I think I had always been into it. I'd expressed some desire, and so. Uh, and then from there, Taekwondo. And then from there, I went to, uh, Northern Chinese martial arts and, and went to Changchun and, uh, and, um, you know, the various things from there. So it, it was all, it, it just, I, I'd, I'd done it, you know, off and on and, and, uh, jumped around from martial art to martial arts. So there's so many different ones that I, I toyed with. And the play with fire to return to that for a second. Uh, how do you use fire? in your restaurant because that was one of the things that really drew me to engaging with you when I was looking at sort of cooking as a metaphor for uh, learning but also life in a way because you're exploring all these different senses and when I visited your restaurant I brought a friend of mine Jeffrey Zorowski who's run many different restaurants worked as a line cook in many very uh, well-known restaurants and he said it was one of the it could have been the intoxication of the 80s music that was being played at the time. <laughs> it could have been the wine pairings. But he said it was one of his top, I think, three meals that he'd ever had. And the fire... Oh, we're not doing very good, then. we got to get that up to the top. Yeah. <laughs> that was a long time ago. <laughs> and the, the fire always struck me. How do you use fire and why do you use it so much? Well, I mean, how is every way, but, but why I think is, is, I mean, literally everything on the menu is, has been touched by fire somehow. And, uh, there are, are, there's so many different ways that we've kind of explored cooking with fire. It's not, it's not all barbecue. It's not all grilled. It's all, um, these kind of, uh, you know, just ways that we've come up to cook with that are based on, uh, what the product needs, right? I think real, really great cooking is based on what the product needs. So mm-hmm. if you get a, you know, you get a, a fish in one day, it has a certain taste, a certain texture, um, a certain, you know, uh, amount of moisture inside. The next day it changes. So you have to change your cooking based on that. So, so, you know, we, 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 um, we approach, you know, the fire the same way, you know, to really, uh, base it around finding uh, great products, amazing products, kind of the best thing in, in local existence, uh, and then um, you know employing a, a technique that is that makes those products better, right? But they still wind up as what they are. So, so that's just in taste in general, and that's uh, temperature, texture, uh, and flavor. So, so the let's talk about just state of freshness for a second, because this is also something that you made me think a lot about. And for those people who hear what sound like coffee mugs, that's exactly what you're hearing. Uh, so, so Josh is armed with a glass or a bowl, a glass or a bowl, I should say, a, a half mug, glass. <laughs> half glass, half bowl, a mug full of green tea and black tea. And I have some as well. But the the question of freshness. So I was reading about, and I've never seen you do this, but Ikejime and like the going through a traditional Japanese butchering process with from live fish to using pretty much every component of said fish, right? Which is an art form in and of itself. People tend to assume fresh is always what you want. How do you how would you educate them or what are your thoughts on the subject? Because you also, just to I guess provide some of the punchline, I mean age a lot of different types of food. Yeah. Uh, how do you think? Yeah. About that? I mean, you know, so you have to look at it like this. Every, everything has its moment when it tastes its best. And, and so it, it really becomes about understanding products and then, uh, learning, you know, what, what period of time 
uh, those products are best in. And so, you know, for some fish, uh, like a big, you know, fatty fish, it's not right after you kill. It's, well, let me take that back. It's actually a little complicated. It's, it's one of two things generally for fish. Like as soon as you pull it out of the water, you kill it, you hack off a slice and you eat it right then and there within the first 30 minutes. It's kind of like hunting, right? Like you have a window, like you can, you can eat it within the first 30 minutes or so and it's really great. It's still tender, hasn't set into rigor mortis yet. Um, or you can really take it you know, into its sweet spot. And, and that could be, you know, a week, a day, uh, six months even for some things. It just really depends on the product. What about, uh, I was going to say pigeons, but I guess I should say squab. Do you age squab? Oh yeah. Yeah. You yeah. do, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, it depends on the time of year. It depends on the diet. Uh, and, and that's the whole, the whole, understanding of products things is you have to you have to really kind of um you know get get a grip on what what they're eating you know how much fat is in the meat um um you know did you if you shot it and then you know bb went through the breast then you probably shouldn't age it you should probably eat it the next day or something so so there's a lot of factors that 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 uh you know contribute um i would say two weeks on a on a squab yeah or a pigeon either one and the let, let's talk about the hunting for a second because we're sitting here and right to our or my left your right on this couch there's a caribou mounted on the wall which uh some people i could actually see and might have seen on a show called meat eater i actually went with a guy named steve ranella who's also uh oh, that's and, you know and, i saw that that's and, right and that's avid the caribou. that's the oh, caribou that's awesome. yeah. and avid yeah. cook yeah. uh i love that he chef, wouldn't consider himself yeah. a, a chef but he's actually a really good cook yeah and uh, he took me on my very first hunt, which was white-tailed deer in South Carolina. And I always grew up with a very negative association with hunting because on Long Island, where I grew up, you would find just beer cans littered all over the place and uh, injured deer on uh, our property and across the street and so on. There's just a lot of negligent hunting but steve showed me a very different know, side long island no yeah i mean it, I, I mean it's can like, you imagine they're the, the responsible denizens of strong island but uh and i'm sure there are great hunters on long island also but the, the point being that steve showed me a very different diametrically opposed responsible approach and took me through the entire process of field dressing and whatnot and my experience was with the white-tailed deer which i felt no guilt about whatsoever and actually uh, this right here, and those who don't have a visual because you wouldn't, I'm I'm picking up a tanned skin that's over the side of my couch is from that first deer. So I want to make these into gloves, but we used everything. Uh, and uh, he, we also have Chester, who is uh, who is Joshua's dog here, a little Frenchy with a brindle coat, uh, and his hunting collar. That's his. Hunting and his dog. hunting collar. It's my bird, it's my bird dog. <laughs> it's pretty vicious. You got to be careful sometimes. Uh, when did you did you start hunting when you were really young or did it come in yeah later? i mean i i did in the woods uh you know i ne i never i never picked up a gun to hunt uh until i was uh just a couple of years ago and uh and so um up until then when i grow well let's go back to florida Gro growing up in florida you know you're you're just surrounded by swamps and alligators and wildlife in general um you know there's you spend most of your time in the woods somewhere you know whether it's a park or or the woods or something so it's just you just can't help it i mean kids are especially being a kid there growing up there's like it, i think it's might be the most dangerous place on earth besides mm -hmm. maybe australia and uh i mean there are alligators crocodiles 
Uh, I think it may have the highest variety of poison snakes in America. Uh, big water moccasins, huge rattlesnakes, alligator gar, you know, you know, alligator gar, fish that look like, you know, alligator mouth that, that grow 10 feet long, snapping turtles that can take your hand off, uh, and just all kinds of other shit, like giant spiders. So it's, it's, uh, you can't help but kind of be in the woods and hunt and, you know, rummage around and gather. And, and my dad was always big into that. Um, so yeah, that's how I grew up. And, and, uh, he would take me over to this, uh, he had a Native American friend of his, uh, named Silver Fox. And so there was always this ethos of, you know, using, using what you kill and hunting, you know, ethically and, or fishing or just doing anything ethically, right? Being in the woods, kind of being one with nature. Um, so that's how I grew up. And, and, you know, the product side of that has always been a part of my cooking and, and part mm-hmm. of my thought process. And, and, uh, and in fact, I, I went, you know, from that to the big city to being vegetarian to being, or pescatarian to vegetarian to vegan. And, and then finally back to hunting again, uh, after becoming chef. So. What led you from, what led you out? Was there any particular moment that led you out of veganism or realization or? I, I, taste. Taste. I, oh, you know what? You know what it was? Actually, I just remember there. So there was, I, I was training again. Uh, I, I, I took a brief moment off of training when I went to school. Um, and this was, uh, FCI? Yeah, or? the French Culinary Institute. It used to be called back then. It's now called the ICC or something. Right. Um, and, uh, and back then it was a bunch of crazy old French dudes, some very well known French chefs. In New York uh, City. Yeah, in New York City. And so I, uh, went into school being kind of a vegetarian, um, in culinary school. That's and, tough. I, and I remember tasting this meat and I was like, God, this is fucking disgusting. This is like, you know, like it, because it's commodity veal, right? You're talking about, you know, uh, feedlot cows and stuff. And that's really nasty stuff. And, uh, so the point was, is that I, I had a dream one night and I was vegetarian at that point, not vegan anymore. Um, and I, I was in a river. I was standing in a river and I just reached down in and I grabbed a giant squid out and I just bit into it and bit a big hunk of the squid out. And so then I woke up and the next day I woke up and I had this craving for salt and pepper squid. And so I went and got salt and pepper squid and it was the best thing I've ever eaten. And that was, that was, that's how I got out of it. And that was it. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was the gateway. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, at the time you were training in Bagua or what were you yeah, training in? Bagua. Can you describe um, that for people who are not familiar? So, so they're, they're the, the typical path to Chinese martial arts as a kid, when you start very young, you start in, uh, like long fist, right? Which is a normal, either, either southern or northern, you know, you pick what, you, what's best for your body type. Um, so, uh, if you have longer, you know, limbs, then usually long fist is the way to go. Um, so, and then you can kind of choose after you do that for your years of basics. Um, and once you get through years of basics, which, you know, take, you know, 10 years or so, then you can kind of start to choose what you want to really kind of specialize in or what you have aptitude towards, um, depending on, you know, not just your body type, but also your, your sensibility and your movement. And, uh, and so, uh, I chose internal martial arts, which is the family of, uh, three Taiji, um, Xingyi and Bagua. And so I chose all three of those, right? And I, and I started, uh, in Taiji because my teacher in Florida, um, was a student of Chen Shao Wang. And, uh, Chen Shao Wang is a, uh, really amazing Taiji teacher from, uh, Chen Village in China. Um, and, and I just traced up the lineage from there. So when I left Florida in high school, I just traced the lineage back and, and, uh, and started doing Xingyi and Bagua. And Bagua was always very interesting to me. 
Um, and then I got just, and then I just specialized in Bagua. And then when I moved out, that was, I don't know, 10 years before I moved here. And I moved here about 12 years ago. Um, and, and then I moved out here and I traced my lineage back to the last surviving member of Fu style Bagua. And uh, his name was Leong Chang Ya. And, uh, he just passed away a couple years ago. But I studied with him for about 10 years, uh, until his death. And, uh, oh, I, was sp- I was supposed to describe Bagua, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so, so Bagua, I mean, you know, it's one of those, it's a, it's kind of this esoteric martial arts and it's really hard to describe. I don't know that there's a really, a two sentence description for Bagua, but if, if I could, if I could, it would be evasion. And I think it's kind of the art of evasion, but there's all these kind of prerequisites to, to that. And I think that it's really hard, even more hard to describe because most of our understanding in America of, of really high level Chinese martial arts is total garbage. Right. There's almost, I don't know if there is even one, to be honest with you. Or, mm. well, I mean, you could probably count them on your, on your hands, right? Right. To get really good Chinese martial arts that, that would be effective. Um, but in terms of, you know, healthfulness, it's a really amazing thing. Mm. Um, so you kind of walk in circles until you get dizzy and yeah. then you're no longer dizzy anymore. And then you learn how to do these little patterns where you go back and forth and up and down. Um, and, uh, it teaches you basically to have a very supple, strong, flexible, um, series of movements that can, uh, react at any time to someone else's movements and, and kind of almost confuse them if you will mm-hmm. or or just evade just enough to where you always have the angular uh, upper hand and uh, because when i when i've thought of bagua and i i don't i know very little about it even though i lived in in china for 6 months in 92 and went to two universities there in beijing where i studied something called da chengchuan for a period of time uh did you go to beida or where did you go no i went to there's one called Oddly enough, in English, Beijing Normal University, which is Beijing Shifandashi, and then there's Beijing Capital University of Business and Economics, which is Shoudu uh, Jingmao Dashi, but they call it the yeah Jingji Maoi Dashi. So that those were the two. And uh, with Bagua, I only I remember seeing someone practicing, and I the Ba I guess is eight. I don't know what it refers to, but there's some relationship to. What are they? The trigrams of well, the like Bagua is basically like uh, um, is the eight trigrams, right? Yeah, the eight okay. trigrams. And so somehow this relates back to uh, a philosophy um, of you know the beginning of everything. It's a binary right. system essentially, to where there was there's a there's you know, the void, it all starts with Wuji, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's the void and then there's one and zero and one binaries. And then it builds from there. And I don't really know. Gets, I, that that yeah. wasn't my purpose for studying things. I never yeah. really, I never understood it and I still don't today. Right. So the cosmology yeah. aspect of yeah. it. <laughs> how has, if, if it has the martial arts affected how you think about food, cooking or vice versa? I think it affects everything. I, really, I think it affects the way that you really think and act and everything you do. And, and I mean, you know, the just overall the ability to be more peaceful with your surroundings. But I think that uh, in cooking, um, I think it's the essential nature, right? We're, we're a restaurant. I mean, if, if you were to ask me what Saison is, I would say it's a restaurant. Um, and uh, they're like, what kind of restaurant? Well, it's, it's American food because there's no... You know, I think, and that's the part where martial arts kicks in because you're not, um, it, it's meant to be 
the essential parts of things, right, in life and where you're stripping away all of the unessential to get to the essential, right? Right. And, um, and, and so that may be, um, you know, taste, maybe the, the actual dish itself in, in the restaurant where you just have what's essential on the plate. You have a beautiful piece of wild, you know, deer or elk or whatever it may be, one that I hunted in a good place at the right time of year. Uh, and you just age it just enough to get to its sweet spot and you just barely grill it and you just put a beautiful sauce in the plate, right? And that's the essential part of what pleasure is, right? Uh, and so, uh, that's the same with the service, right? I mean, here's the description. It's very simple. It's very basic. We want to get in, give the person their food, get out, let them have a pleasurable experience, right? So all of it is kind of reflected. The whole philosophy of the restaurant and everything else is reflected through, um, you know, those, those kind of uh, principles. I, I think that's very martial arts, right? Oh, it is. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I think that the, you know, the, there are parallels in all these things. And the reason, part of the reason I wanted to have you on is because I know you have this deep love and obsession with the Chinese martial arts and internal martial arts. And so I've been fantasizing in part myself of doing, a, <laughs> sorry, I just keep laughing because <laughs> just- Josh's dog, like a prairie dog, keeps popping up because he wants to get on the couch. Justin, uh, <laughs> get up here. <laughs> I'm going to take a picture of this. And, uh, but I've been fantasizing about doing a second podcast, I don't think I'm going to, uh, called Side Gig, because I think that what we do as the primary activity, as people view it, is so informed by what other obsessions we might have, and vice versa. The uh, So the question of reducing... And simplifying, I think, transfers across all these different areas, right? You look at people who are really world-class as athletic coaches. There's one track and field coach, I remember, I think he was Dutch, who said, you know, do as little as is necessary, not as much as is possible, right? You could apply that to your food. You could apply that to Bagua. Anything, really, I think, in life, yeah. and, uh, sorry to destroy your couch. No, that's all right. right. Chester's having a, Chester's having a nervous (laughs) breakdown. Uh, what do you think has made Saison unique and successful as a restaurant? Well, I mean, I, th- I, 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 I think that at the end of the day, it was about that. Actually, that uh, just the philosophy, the ethos of the of the restaurant, and, and it, because you know, it started with just the food. Yeah. You know, um, asking myself, um, you know, a series of questions about what I thought about the food and the quality and the essentialness of everything. Um. And I think that triggered everything else. And, and that was, you know, really starting and saying, um, okay, you know, when we first, before we even started Saison, it's really just my thought process about, um, how to create good food. And, and is this, uh, let's say I'm making a dish and I eat, I eat it and I, I get to it and I say, is this really the best version of this thing that I've ever eaten or ever put in my mouth? And if the answer, it's either yes or no. And the answer is no, then I have to start over and I have to really think through uh, the reality of what, and just keeping yourself grounded and thinking. And what, what is the reality of if, you know, Mr. Uh, Joel Robichon came in or something, what would he say? Or what would uh, the best chef in Japan say? You know, and so that, it was that kind of process where, that I think is, is certainly influenced by martial arts. And that's, that's how it all started, I guess. How have you responded when, what is your internal dialogue or or self-talk like when you get, say, a review from a critic that you wish were better? 
Uh, or we don't get those anymore, but I hear you from Or when you get no, well, so it's, I want you to correct my timeline if I'm wrong. But so let's, I'm going to use my my flawed memory to try to just paint a picture here. So we connected when you're at the old location, much smaller location. Uh, we kept in touch, hit it off. You ended up then developing the new location, which I wanted to invest in. Purely, and this is the only time, I don't know if I ever told you this, this is the only time I've ever done it, where I made the investment viewing it like, this is going to sound silly maybe, but a, a patron grant in a way, because I enjoyed your work so much, I just wanted to see what you would do next. And so it's like, it, it, it's, I cared more about you being able to continue to experiment and refine what you were doing than I cared about ever seeing that come back. Now, uh, the restaurant's done extremely well, but that was the reason for doing it. And then the, uh, I remember at one point there was, it, it wasn't a bad review, but it wasn't like a flawless review that came out. And we had a little bit of communication and there, you didn't really say anything and you just went heads down. And then it was like a, maybe a year later that you became, is it one of the, one of the two restaurants ever to receive three Michelin stars in San Francisco? In San Francisco, yeah. In San yeah, Francisco. So we were, we were the first along with, uh, one other restaurant. Yeah. yeah. Bennu, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. And, uh, when, when you get either an imperfect review or a great review, what, what, what do you say to yourself? Well, I mean, you know, reviews are, are, are you know, the, the whole whole media, is, it's a great validation in some ways to hard work. But at the end of the day, you know, if uh, those things didn't exist, you know, asses in the seats are really what what make you enjoy your life. Right. Mm-hmm. And and so, um, you know, for that reason, it's just you, you have to just uh, I mean, there's learning tools there. You know, you get a bad review, then you have to really think about it. You gotta really, is this really true? You know, it's important to, you know, take in what's what's real and, and discard what's not. Right. Mm-hmm. Because. Um, we, we know the media is, uh, it can be a little silly sometimes. Yeah. So, um, or inaccurate, let's say. But, but there is also a lot of really knowledgeable people out that have traveled the world. And, uh, and, uh, I don't know. To be honest with you, I don't think about it anymore. Yeah. I don't think about it anymore because, uh, when I see people come in the restaurant and really have such an amazing time, that's what's kind of special to me. That's what, that's what makes it worth it. Um, it's very, you know, simple in a way. And I, I'm a, I'm a simple, simple dude in many ways. Uh, well, the, uh, I remember the first time I did a, I guess I'm not sure if I would call it chef's table. I think it was a chef's table dinner at Saison. And the, 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 there were a couple of simple, and I was looking for things that I could share in the four hour chef, right? Things that people could try and test themselves. And one of them was so simple, but so well done. And I want you to, to describe it. I don't remember the name, but it was effectively a piece of cling wrap on top of a, not a martini glass, but a, a very nice piece of glassware. Oh, the magic bowl. There we go. The magic bowl. The magic <laughs> bowl. Can you describe yeah. this? And then a piece yeah. of food suspended yeah, yeah. on top. Yeah, so it's just like, uh, it's, it's been around for a long time, but it's basically just you stretch a piece of saran wrap over the top of a glass bowl. Uh, or any bowl really for that matter, where the, basically you stretch it far enough around the edges so that when you rip it off, uh, the top seems like it's floating on air, right? So you can't really tell that there's saran wrap there. 
And uh, I, the, yeah, people love that. And then it, you just, it looks like the food's floating. You put a piece of food on top of the saran wrap, it looks like the food's floating. Yeah, it's yeah. it's just, but it's a very, I'd never seen now it. Now I think it's totally ridiculous and I would never do it again. Well, but, <laughs> but, but at the it was, time. It was fun. Though. At the time it was yeah. fun. So what yeah. are you experimenting with these days? What are you most excited to work on or experiment with? Uh, I, I, it's, it's products, you know, as, as time goes on, you know, just like if you practice your, you know, your martial arts over and over again, it, you, you do that one throw, you know, millions of times if you can. And then that's when it really starts to get interesting. It's the same way with cooking. Like you do, you repeat uh, the same process over and over and over again, thousands and thousands of times. And you start to, you know, get a little better understanding of it. And then another few thousand times go by, you start to get a little more better understanding of it. And then you maybe start to look at your products a little differently. You start to chase down better products. Um, you're, you know, a little bit less salt, more natural flavor comes out. You know, there, there's, it's such subtle little differences and, but that's really what makes up really, really great cooking is just all of those little tiny things done really well throughout uh, a process that you've repeated, you know, thousands and thousands of times. Mm -hmm. Well, it makes me think of Bruce Lee, right? I mean, and I'm going to butcher the quote, but along the lines of, I, I don't fear the man who's practiced 10,000 kicks one time each. I, I, I fear the man who's practiced one kick 10,000 times. Right, exactly. Well, that's really what it's about because in that, that's from martial arts. I mean, you know, I, the more I talk about it, the more it comes back to really just martial arts and practicing. Because we used to, you know, we used to, when I was young, we would practice the same throw for hours and hours and hours again. It was just do that throw over and over and over again. That's all we did and do until we could just do it no matter what, right? Until it's default, until it's, uh, you know, you go through those isolation drills where you basically isolate everything that you do in your arsenal and then you do it so many times that it's there when you need it, no matter what, right? right? Uh, that's, that's, uh, same with cooking, right? Same with anything, I Make guess. Make it part of your on demand repertoire. Yeah. What's that? Make it part of your on-demand repertoire. Yeah. Like you can call yeah. it when yeah. you need it. Yeah. Uh, so of the, inf if, if you were to think of some of the biggest influences, uh, or mentors, they don't have to be from cooking, but, uh, in your sort of development as a chef, as a cook, who, who are some of the names that come to mind or people who come to mind? You know, that, I don't know. It's a great question. I mean, you take influence from everywhere. Um, this is another question that happens sometimes that I can't ever answer. I'm sure there are uh, and, a ton and, of them, but I'm not going to let you go with they're they're everywhere. I'm gonna. <laughs> so I, I want no, they, they they are everywhere, but I but well, I'll I, give, uh, yeah. Just I'm I'm looking for any any specific lessons learned. So for instance, I'll give you an example. One of my friends who who used to work at uh one of Danny Meyer's very first restaurants. No, it wasn't at Danny. Well, he did he did do that, but he worked with this very famous French chef at one point and he so he wanted to he ended up teaching this guy jeffrey how to move through the kitchen without being underfoot and like getting in the way of everyone else and he would always say to him he go jeffrey you are like my dick always between my legs <laughs> and he would yell at him but he th that is one of the lessons that he learned was just how to navigate moving between line cooks and so on right so like yeah in, in the school of hard knocks, 
I'm, I'm, I'm like running through my head right now to try yeah. to find an example. And I, and you know, I think what the problem is with me is that I don't remember shit. My memory is absolutely <laughs> terrible. And, and, uh, in many ways, because I think that my process is, uh, uh, feelings and shapes. And, you know, here's, uh, here, here is, uh, uh, an image that triggers a memory. Mm-hmm. Here is, a um, you know, a feeling that creates a thought. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I guess that's the same for everybody. I don't know, yeah. but, but, um, maybe it's just that my memory really sucks. It could be, <laughs> it, it could, could be. be. But if I, if I really could, I mean, if I could, if I could look at mentors, then it would have to be probably my, one of my first martial arts teachers in Florida, mm-hmm. uh, in Chinese martial arts, uh, his name is Cam Lee. Um, and he was just, he, he was this guy who was just, you know, he's shorter, stockier dude. And he would just, practice everything that he preached he was a living example of of everything real mm-hmm. around him and, and truthful and kind of sincere and honest and um but he was also you know real badass on the side like he he would i mean like he could just throw you to the ground it just right. that there was just no but he wouldn't ever unless you're training right and so uh he just embodied this kind of peacefulness and um uh, healthfulness and patience and all these things. And I don't know, I, I lost the patience a long time ago, so I didn't really do well with that example. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but in many ways, you know, I, I still look back to him, you know, all the time, just, just based on those simple, you know, kind of simple examples that he provided that are, you know, simple to say, but really hard to do. Yeah. You know, the, uh, what, what have been some of the toughest times for you? Professionally or personally? <sighs> opening saison opening was both a, a great time and a, and a and a really tough time. In the beginning, I mean, we're you know we're we were in an alley right when we started. Yeah. It was one day a week, um, and we started it because uh, I was I was unhappy in my my you know consulting job that I was doing. Um, I was I wound up being broke after spending all my money in two thousand seven or whatever it is. Um, I'm, you know, 2007 was a very kind of a uh, prosperous year, uh, for money for me and I made a bunch of money, but then I wound up, I thought it was just going to keep coming. And then all of a sudden everything crashed. I was like, Oh shit, I screwed this one up. So I said, you know, if, if I'm going to be broke, I'd rather be happy and broke than, than, you know, miserable and broke. And so that's why I started Saison. It gave me the, the, uh, kind of like courage to just say, you know what, fuck it. I'm just going to jump out on my own here and just do what I really want to do, what I really believe in. Um, and that started as just a simple thing one night a week, you know, in a, in an alley really. Right. Now the one night a week, was that because you were renting the space from someone else just for once a week and that's what you could afford? Or was it that that was the only way you could really prepare? Well, there's no deposit. So that's why we could afford it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, but we, we started, we started with like 10 grand, right. Mm -hmm. Of, of our own money. It was just, it was $10,000 and that was it. Um, we, we had, there was one opening in this event space. Um, which was the old Saison. And, and we just, you know, Sunday nights at Saison. We started Sunday nights at Saison. I just wanted to cook again. Um, and, and so we, we went, we, we bought some pots, we bought some plates and we, we, we get, we went. Jumped into it. Yeah. What were, what were the hardest experiences in those first few months for you? Oh, right. So to get back to your original question, you know, we, we started this thing inside a cafe. 
um, that uh, I'm sure they're going to be very angry once I expose all this. But um, there, there was a, there's this cafe, and and they would just had they just had really bad practices, and and we we you know worked out a deal to where we would do. Um, you know, our Sunday nights, but they would always get in the way or like some of their workers would come in and just like touch our food and shit that we spent three months, you know, trying to perfect. Oh my God. Um, or we had, you know, like we would have like these beautiful like ferments that we made from like three years ago. What are ferments? Well, just like oh, pickles like fermented, or something. Let's say you have pickles right, or something. Yeah. You got a pot of pickles in the backyard that I've had for, you know, seven years that have been aging carefully and now they're amazing. And then, you know, you got this knucklehead coming in and like spilling shit on top of them. Oh God. And, uh, and the dish pit was shared. So the dish where the dishwashing happened was shared between the old saison and the cafe and it was just a nightmare and the place would flood every year with sewage water and we had to rip everything out throw everything away start over um i mean it was just it was it was it was like the most volatile place ever um so it it was i mean you know what's funny about that is that the day that we were moving out you know we got all our investments to move to the new location um, that was like four years ago now, I think. Um, and, and the day that we were moving out, it was, we had finished service for the night, you know, great last service. We hired movers. Everybody came in, packed everything up and it was probably four in the morning or five in the morning by then. Um, and we we're just waiting and, uh, we fell asleep. I fell asleep on the, you know, on the stool outside, uh, just waiting for the movers to show back up because they needed to go get breakfast or something. They were supposed to just take all the shit. Uh, and then all of a sudden I woke up to somebody screaming, shit, it's flooding. There's fucking water everywhere. And, and within 15 minutes, the, the, I get whatever the system was on Folsom street is really the worst infrastructure in, in all of San Francisco. And within 15 minutes, we're under three feet of water back Ugh. there because there was a gradient and it went down and, you know, from the street level it was approximately two or three feet higher than, than, uh, the back of the restaurant. And so all of our stuff that we packed up was completely soaked in sewage water. We got <laughs> pictures of like Mark Bright, you know, the sommelier, yeah. floating on a barrel, on a wine barrel out in there, you know, with a little lasso in his hands that he made. Just, just, it was just ridiculous. So that, that was, that was how we ended, uh, that's how we ended the old space. And, uh, we just threw everything out and started over. <laughs> so in a situation like that, it's a catastrophe strikes. Uh, how do you contend with that mentally yourself? I mean, is there a person you call? Do you just go fucking hey, smash on the wooden man for a 17 no. hours straight? What do you do? I, I just, I, I just, it's all internal. It's all just, I just, uh, I was just thinking to myself, you know, I was just kind of exasperated and, and I, cause I lost all my old books from like culinary school. Oh man. Um, like every note that I'd ever taken for, for, um, you know, 10 years or so or 15 years was in that flood like all of my notes oh, my that's my, my worst nightmare all of the ideas of like uh any any uh thing that was truly unique to my thoughts you sound you know, like me i've just got like bookshelves of notebooks yeah so all those just gone in sewage and all the ink was running on them and i was like that that was the everything else is replaceable but that was really truly the thing where i looked at it and i was like fuck i just had to sit down for a while and uh and, uh, but, uh, you know, we're moving into new space. So there's a positive spin. I was like, you know, fuck it. We're just going to start over. And, uh, it's the same thing we started with. It's the, uh, it's all up there somewhere. I know not those exact things, but you just got to start over. Well, I remember, uh, so something very similar happened to a guy I had on the podcast recently named Cal Fussman. So Cal is one of the 
most masterful interviewers I've ever met. He did the What I've Learned series, uh, probably, I don't know, 60% of it for Esquire magazine. So he's interviewed everybody, like Gorbachev, Clooney, like you name it. It's everybody. And at one point, he'd been working on this piece for like a year and a half. And it was in the basement of some, I think, uh, relative's house. And then it flooded. And he lost all of his notes for a piece he'd been working on for a year about becoming for a day a sommelier on top of the World Trade Center because it was because 9/11 happened and like interrupted everything of course I mean huge tragedy he wasn't sure he should even work on it and the advice that he was given by I guess it was a mentor who just said the good shit sticks it's like sit down and write it he's like the good <laughs> shit sticks did you uh what were the best decisions that you made with the new space so in a way I mean you get this flood notes are gone you're starting from, I mean, scratching away, right? You have to, to get, you have to buy. Well, they were starting over, actually. I, I think, I think, I think the best decision I made was just to, to say, okay, screw it, let's let's really start over. Let's let's just let's just completely empty our cup here and and really uh, think about now and and what is really valuable. You know, what's really valuable to me now? What what's honest? What's sincere about what we're doing? And um, and let's do that. And, and that's really, uh, still the driver to, to Saison now. When you have people come in, when you hire people to cook at the restaurant. Really? Chester keeps uh, farting right in my, <laughs> right in your left he's armpit. He's a that little puppy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very passionate. Yeah. He's, he's out cold. Uh, <laughs> he's, he, he was, uh, so this, he looks kind of like a little pork chop and there, there's, there is, uh, I went pig hunting. Uh, yeah. I go all the time, but I went, um, in last, uh, month up, up so. north and here, in, uh, in, uh, out like to the west of Red Bluff near Mendocino right. National Forest. Got it. Um, and, uh, and there are pig dogs. Um, on one of the hunts and, and they're all in the truck. And so we were walking by, I walked by with Chester and they thought he was a pig, I think, because they were going <laughs> fucking crazy in there and they were barking at him and he stopped and looked and he was, it, it's, he it looks kind of like a little, he little does, pig, does you know? look like yeah. a little porker, yeah. pork chop. But anyway, uh, <laughs> so when you, when you bring someone in, you have a very, very high level, or you have a very, very high standard at Saison. What, training or pep talk or anything do you do with these people we give them the silent treatment as soon as they walk through the door basically you give them silent treatment (laughs) treatment, (laughs) to see if they're gonna crack yeah (laughs) okay so so no no i'm just kidding we don't we're we're uh i mean just i do but my staff doesn't and my team doesn't um uh you you know i i guess in terms of in in terms of training you know there is uh I, i i went through a long period of just like the old school you know mentality of of like uh zero patience, you know, kind of here, here's, um, here's why, you know, I don't know, just, just that old school, like abusive mentality of cooking. Yeah, drill that's sar- drill sergeant, like, like yeah, military it's all drill mentality. sergeant, you know, that, that kind of military, um, ridiculousness really. Right. Yeah. Um, but that's evolved into over the years of just, you know, going back to kind of the martial arts thing and, and, you know, just kind of remembering, you know, that patience from, um, from my teachers and just from what martial arts does in general. Um, so now it, it's really like, I, I like to, you know, if I, if I can create the, you know, the Google of restaurants and that's, that's really a, a nice thing, right? It's a, it's a great goal for me, uh, in terms of having a really exceptional workplace. And, you know, granted, I don't really know anything about Google at all. So I could, it could be terrible. I don't know, but I mean, from the outside, who, who was it that, uh, I was just listening to somebody talk about, uh, 
um, you know, from the outside, everybody's trying to get in, and from the inside, everybody's trying to get out. <laughs> so, 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 I don't remember. I think it's some podcast or something. But, yeah, but, I, can, I can see that. I mean, the I, I know I have a lot of friends at Google, though, and uh, it seems to be pretty exceptional. It's yeah, like, so so that's really the goal. The goal now is really is really mentorship and and how uh, we can create this kind of like package on the inside to help our team navigate through some really you know difficult and enigmatic uh, you know environment. To, because there's always a gray area when you start at a new place, right? You don't really know uh, everything that you need to. And even if you are a great cook, let's say, and you start in a new kitchen at a very high level, then then there's going to be things you don't know. Every chef has a different way to do things. Every restaurant has a different SOP for something. And and so SOP, I wanted to create... standard of practice? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, standard, standard operating, operating procedure. procedure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so I, I wanted to create really this uh, app, essentially, That'll allow people to operate every moment of their day, like Subway. Mm-hmm. Uh, Subway actually sucks, but right. but uh, I got a funny story about Subway later on. I'll tell you. But uh, <laughs> but um, and, and so that it gives people, you know, this this huge, you know, influx of information, so they can be successful. So that's kind of the way we operate now. We want people to be um, mentored through the process. Um, and, and, you know, in return, they develop loyalty to mm-hmm. that kind of, you know, patience that you give them. Right. Um, and, and then they wind up, you know, really learning something that's tangible because I want these guys to come and work for us and, you know, spend a few years there. Um, and it really takes, you know, five years or so to really learn about, you know, uh, cooking at a, at a certain, you know, a certain kind of cooking, certain level. I don't want to use level because I sound like a dick when I say that, but, but I just want to use, you know, the, a certain type of cooking. Um, and I want them to be able to walk away with something really tangible where they can, you know, contribute or recontribute. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so since you brought it up, Subway, tell me the story. <laughs> I don't know. I might go to jail after I tell you the story. There was, uh, no, I used to work in Subway and there was always like, like a little manual and I was, I was probably 15 when I was 16, 16 probably when I worked there. Um, and, uh, we would, uh, I don't know if I should tell the story. We would, uh, we can we, cut it out later if you change your mind. Let, let's go. So we, we, um, would, uh, you know, it made me think of Subway because of their manual, their right. operating manual. So my first, my second memory from Subway would be us, um, learning how to block out the cameras by standing in strategic positions, <laughs> putting bubble gum on the end of a coat hanger and fishing $100 bills out of the safe in the floor drop. <laughs> so. So we did that for about a week, and then I, I think we all got fired after that. Because so, <laughs> nobody knew what happened to the hundies. Yeah. It was like, what happened there? Wow, that's some real like Ocean's Eleven action at Subway. Who knew? That was my uh, time. So my contribution to Subway. Uh, you know, I've I've always wanted to ask you, and I've never asked you. Do you have, uh, what's your opinion of Francis Malman, if any? I don't know if you even know who I'm talking about. I know who you're talking about. I don't. I don't know enough about him to really give you my opinion. I, I saw the Chef's Table episode that he did mm-hmm. um, that I thought was uh, really cool. Yeah, I, I love that series. Um, and uh, he's he's very philosophical. Yeah. Um, but I. But you know, I. I it's funny. It's cool. I. Lo- it's beautiful to see like what he's doing out there in nature. Uh, obviously, he's a legend. He's been around for a long time. I don't know enough about it though to really say anything meaningful. But. But. Um, 
but uh, I I think it's amazing, you know, looking at like him out in Patagonia and those like just pulling trout out of the lake. And I mean, that for a chef, that's the ultimate, right? Yeah. And I, I, that's actually something I've been working on for years and years is just to get myself to the woods and just so I could stay in the woods. I can gather, I can hunt, I can fish, I can cook, I can eat and uh, just be happy. And that's kind of really my goal of happiness is just to be out there in the woods and, and just, you know, look, here's a root. I'm going to dig it up and I'm going to cook it and it's going to taste great. And uh, we're going to have some wine together and we're all going to celebrate and have a great time. And that's, that's, that's what I'm looking for. So, so I don't know. I don't really know enough about him. I think uh, he likes to burn shit. He likes he to burn really shit. That's burn why shit everywhere. I don't really, I don't like burnt food like that. So I, uh, I it's okay. Like, so you don't like the, so you're talking like the charring. Yeah. Or? I mean, there, I like food that has a delicacy to it. So that, so it's very like, I like food that is, uh, you know, you got to think in terms of volume, right? If, if you put on like, what's that, uh, like heavy metal band, like Guar or whatever. Guar, Slipknot. You know, you, just, whoever. You, tur- you turn it, you just pick something like that. You just turn the volume all the way up in the house and you're just, then there's that's like Guy Fieri, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. He's that's he's Guar on level ten. Okay. <laughs> so okay. then you take so then you take um let's just use a really a restaurant that I really love in in the mountains of Kyoto. And they serve all wild foods from around there. Really delicate. The broths are under seasoned by our Western standards. Um and, and you know, it's all about natural taste, but there's an incredible beauty to that food. Then that's a volume one, right? And so that's really what we're looking for in, in our world of cooking, right? So so I don't I don't like the level tens. I like yeah. the level twos, you know, yeah. around there. That's I'd be, yeah. yeah, I I would love to just be a fly on the wall. Maybe sometime we'll get down to Patagonia and have a couple bottles of Malbec with with Francis, but what struck me, there were a handful of cookbooks that really inspired me when I was working on The 4-Hour Chef, which was very confusingly to most people, a book about accelerated learning, kind of disguised as a cookbook. But Seven Fires, which was by Francis Mallman, because he had the fancy French training, right? But he chose to go back to a lot of basics, and but like refine them to such a degree that they were highly, highly uh, advanced from a kind of a technical level, right? And then, uh, I think it was just Mission Street Food or Mission Chinese, just a beautifully well put together book. A handful of others. There was another one, uh, on hunting and foraging from the UK, the name of which I'm blanking on at the moment. River, maybe? River Cottage. Yeah. So the escape. Those are cool. The TV show is what I, was my kind of like fantasy escape for a while. The first, I was it Escape from River Cottage or Escape to River Cottage by Hugh Fernsley Whittingshall. Like the, I think that's his name, the most British name ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, incredible books, but that TV show for people who fantasize about getting out of the city and going back to the land and hunting and foraging and fishing. I highly recommend the, the first season of that series. Uh, I gotta check that out. I don't, I don't know. Oh, it's so it. good. Yeah. It's so good. Is there, uh, uh, do you gift books to people? Like historically, have you have you given books as gifts? If so, yeah. I, any I, any that come to mind? They're all different. I mean, I, you know, the one that I just gave out in most recent history was uh, there's an old uh, bar book. It's called uh, Cocktail Techniques, and it's from an old. Have you seen that one? It's a no, little, little tiny book, and it's from uh, the. I think it's the the guy from uh, Bar High Five. He's like you know in Tokyo. Yeah, sure. Um, it just it's just about pure craft and technique. It's just called cocktail techniques. It's, yeah, it's cocktail techniques, I think. And uh, I think that's the guy. It could be a different guy, but, but, uh, really cool books. I just gave those out to a bunch of my staff. Um, but, uh, uh, the, the other one is the art of, uh, Tai Chi Chuan. And it's, it's, or the Tao of Tai Chi Chuan. 
and um, it's by a, a guy named Joe Sung Wa, I think his name is. I don't know, uh, something along those lines. But it's a really, um, it's it's a really amazing book on Taiji, and and it has a lot of epiphanies in there because he started uh, Taiji when he was forty something because of his bad health. So he was like on his deathbed or something along those lines. He got cancer mm-hmm. or something like that, and he uh, he apparently you know went through. You know, he started from being completely unhealthy and then took his, his journey through Taiji to, to become, uh, one of the foremost experts in America on Taiji. And he That's traveled wild. the world and, uh, starting at 40. Yeah. So. And, and, and of course, within a few years, just like everybody else that does Taiji, they become fixed essentially more or less, right? As long as you, you're consistent in your practice, you do it the right way and you practice it for health and you, every, I've seen a lot of people over the years, like, you know, car accidents or whatever. Um, so, uh, that's one of my other favorite books because there's a lot on the, the application process and the actual martial part of Taiji, which is really almost non-existent, mm-hmm. um, in China too. And it's still almost non-existent now because yeah. everything's kind of sport based ever since, uh, ever since I suppose, uh, martial arts became, uh, inessential once, you know, the, the, you know, firearms were, were created. Then that was the downhill of, of, uh, you know, hand to hand combat, yeah. right? Well, was it, uh, <laughs> those downward trends. Like, yeah. It, what is it? Like in necessity is the mother of invention, right? And it's like, once you don't have that as a necessity. Yeah. Everybody's like, Oh, thank God I could just shoot this guy. I'm like, how do they stand in a horse stance for 18 hours a day? <laughs> uh, when you think of the word successful, who's the first person who comes to mind? Uh, I don't have a person. To me, success is is living what brings you joy, you know. And I think doing whatever whatever uh, process brings you happiness, I think, is what success to me. And that's really that's really all it is, right? Because at the end of the day, it's freedom that matters. And and whatever that freedom is to each individual is kind of what's important. So for me, it's just being in the woods. At some point, I'm just you're gonna I'm gonna disappear. I'm gonna be in the woods. <laughs> There'll be uh, I'll see I'll, I'll see some <clears throat> the 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 uh, like the Montana Freeman. I'll just have some holdout skeins. Now now I'm embarrassed to say. Hold on a second. So I've only heard you say your last name once, and it made me think that I've been saying your last name incorrectly for as long as I've had your your name written anywhere in front of me. How yeah, do everybody s- does. So well, okay. So uh, my family, you know, we grew up saying it skeins skeins, but in Scotland they say skein. Skeen is the proper way to say it. Got it. So the silent S. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. 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 Okay. Or maybe they say skeens too. But you know, say skeens. Yeah, we say skeens. Yeah. Skeens. Right. Yeah. The what is the most joy that you felt in the last three months, six months, recent memory? Well, for those last six or you know three six months, I've actually been working on a big deal for the company. And so, uh, it would have to been last week when I closed the deal because uh-huh. <laughs> I could finally breathe again. I, I feel, I, I read so many legal documents in the last, in the last six months that I feel like I could be a lawyer. It's mind numbing. <laughs> it just, it's yeah. my, it's so, it's so miserable in every way possible. Um, but it's nice to get it done. Can yeah. you talk about that or not yet? No, I can't talk about it yet. Okay. It's, it, there's a lot of exciting stuff to happen here. There are very, very exciting things. And, and, uh, you know, this whole woods thing is something that I've been thinking about for years and years and years because, um, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that, um, to really get to the highest level of your craft of cooking, you need to be submerged in, in the woods and you need to be surrounded and isolated by the wild, really to, to really 
reach a certain point. It's the water, it's the air, it's, it's the, the way the air tastes when you're there. It's everything contributes to that. It's the products, of course. So, but that's an ultra geeky level of it. You know, it's like there's, it's only for a handful of people that really enjoy that kind of thing. But I think most people enjoy being in the woods. So if you could pick anywhere outside of the U.S. to immerse yourself in the outdoors that way, where would you pick? Outside of the U.S., I, I guess, you know, my whole life is just a few things. It's, it's, um, well, I mean, besides family, the only thing that I really, uh, you know, give a shit about are martial arts and cooking. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not just cooking. It's just, it's the whole process, the whole act, the whole commune with nature, uh, you know, being out in the wilderness and being able to hunt your own meat. Uh, and it's not about the killing. It's about the, the, um, the sustenance that we get and kind of the feeling that we get from being part of that process. Also, it's and, just like uh, the consciousness and the reverence in a way of having to go through the entire process. Yeah. It, tre- it you have to treat things differently once you experience killing another, you know, thing, right? Another living thing, especially when you kill a big animal like an elk and a deer. There's a very different feeling from shooting a bird or something, right? Even though, you know, the bird, uh, I, I didn't, you know, start doing that stuff until later. So uh, to me, they're all the same. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you, you walk away with, um, you know, as a cook, especially, you know, knowing that you're not going to waste a single piece of anything on that animal. And I think that's very important because a lot of our, th- this ties back into a way bigger conversation, which is about, um, just our, our commodity food processes in America. And, and we are full of disease and shit because of the way that we eat and the way we treat our food, you know, there's feedlot cattle and, and, uh, you know, chemically induced, uh, you know, vegetables and crops and, and, uh, you know, most of our food sources now are, are products that we use on the commercial market or have zero or, or, you know, almost very little, uh, resemblance to what they originally were. And, yep. uh, and so, um, you know, that, that's even more reason to just go to the woods, get out of here. <laughs> so where would you, if you had, if you had to pick a spot outside the U S to, Oh, sorry. I missed no, that. No, no, that's okay. I get off on these tangents. Well, that's, um, I, I, it takes one to know one. So that's, <laughs> I, I can realize, keep me in line. I can realize, yeah, I can. Uh, you know, I don't know. I, 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 I was just looking at uh, British Columbia. Um, my picture, my, my, um, perfect place would be mountain streams where, where the mountain streams meet the ocean really, you know, and, and that's, that's kind of the perfect place where it's, uh, so British Columbia has a lot of that. I, I want to experience the four seasons. Um, you know, I want to see snow. I want to see the flowers in the spring and, uh, you know, I want to have, uh, you know, a bear walk through the woods and potentially eat my goat, you know, cause it's, uh, I, there's a cycle there. There's a, there's a cycle of life and a cycle, uh, of, um, you know, things that don't exist in a city anymore. And we're so, uh, removed from, from just everything really in a city in a lot of ways. So, so, um, I don't know location wise. I mean, I love, BC is a good choice. Huh? I yeah. think. Yeah. Yeah. It I, looks I, amazing uh... up there. I was just looking at buying, um, there's a, there's a hunting territory up there that I wanted to buy. And, um, it was really cheap. And so we can, maybe we can go in on this. Um, there was, uh, shit you not, there was, there was a 250 square mile hunting territory. And, you know, the center of that was, uh, I think 200 acres or something like that. Right. Uh, and there's cabins on it and it's on a lake and the stream and it was $500,000. Wow. So I, uh, 
Uh, you know, I mean, so we talk naturally you're like, before okay, this yeah, gets, the, the before this seems... podcast goes out, yeah. <laughs> let's get out of here. <laughs> uh, I dated a very lovely, um, woman whose family was from BC. So I ended up spending quite a lot of time up around Victoria and some of the more the rural outskirts of Victoria stunning i mean it's and we 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 wanted i mean you had to be cognizant of bears and so on and so forth and i i spent so much time trying to track down of course firearms are very difficult to get a hold of but this was while i was doing also the sort of refinement on the four-hour chef and i wanted to go rabbit hunting <laughs> and i spent so much time trying to track down high-powered pellet guns <laughs> And then I was like, well, maybe I'll yeah, just, just call me. I like slingshot safe. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's a beautiful part of the world. I did a road trip for those people interested with my brother uh, because I'd done so many trips between San Francisco and LA, right? San Francisco South. I think it's very common. I'd never gone north. So I did a road trip with my brother from San Francisco all the way up the coast to Whistler in Canada and stopped along the way at all these you know lumberjack houses and so on in Oregon saw the dunes that inspired the book dune uh i think also in Oregon the avenue of the titans and so on it's amazing uh, up north it really oh, it's is gorgeous. It's, it's gorgeous people search yeah. uh, for those people interested search my last name this i think gems of the northwest or something i highlight 16 different stops that we made but um <sighs> Yeah, there's, I, I spent a lot of time last fall going up into like Hat Creek and, and, uh, the, uh, like all of those falls up there. And oh, so it, many it's amazing up there. Yeah, it's incredible yeah, up there. A lot of Shasta, pers- especially up around Shasta. Shasta is apparently like a, one of the vortexes in the world, whatever that means. Yeah. Um, I don't know what that means. <laughs> that's what I heard. <laughs> Worth exploring. Yeah. Uh, do you have, what is your, what does your morning look like? What are your morning rituals? And let's say not necessarily when you're in, like hyper legal due diligence mode, but let's just say when uh, when you're not covered in that. When kind I'm of at stuff. peace again, yeah. Uh, what is your mil- morning? Uh, like? Hong Kong milk tea and tai chi. To be honest, that's what really time good. do you wake up? Um, it's always different. I'm very inconsistent with that. I'm like one day it'll be 1 p.m. The next day it'll be 5 a.m. Got it. It, it just depends. Um, so but you- I do. I love the morning, and I and I I um, I. Uh, if 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 I had my perfect scenario, it would just be you know a, a cup of tea and 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 uh, some tai chi and then uh, get on with it. Got it. Do yeah. you do you uh, what type of tea? Hong Kong milk tea. Hong Kong Hong milk Kong tea. milk tea. Yeah. What is in so Hong, Hong Kong, Kong milk tea? Is is like a, there there's a mixture of black teas. Every place has their own brew. You know, different types of leaves could be Darjeeling or Ceylon's or or whatever. Um, and then you essentially soak it in water and you, you overbrew it in some ways. There's a very high ratio of leaves to water. Um, and then you mix it with, uh, evaporated milk. Um, and uh, some people put sugar or sweetened condensed milk in there. I just take it straight. But, uh, but, uh, it's something that I, I grew to love in Hong Kong. And it was just an amazing thing in Hong Kong. I, I, it's addictive. It's highly, highly addictive. <laughs> um, so I, that's what I drink in the morning. And then the Tai Chi, how long would you practice that for? What type of Tai Chi? Um, you know, I've gone, do, as, I've in, gone as short as like 37 seconds in some mornings to yeah. like, uh, you know, three hours. <laughs> it just depends. It depends on the time. Um, I usually do like a, a couple sets. Mm-hmm. I do like one set, maybe slow, couple sets. That's it. Yeah. Just, just to get the blood flowing and to, to, to rebalance yourself because yeah. there's a lot of, like one of the things about doing, um, 
doing these forms for the in, with the intention of fighting and not with the intention of performance or health is that you you develop a certain kind of like stability in your body and legs and i've noticed that start to go away over the last few years with just being busy and stuff like that and, and uh you, know, you can feel it in your knees like i went like when i was go, especially going hunting and stuff i was like wow this this would have been super easy you know, for me a, a few years ago, but now I feel like fucking Chris Farley. I don't know, it's, like, it's like the worst. It's really hard. Yeah. I, I noticed this, uh, very recently also doing, I mentioned when we were just making tea before we started recording, getting into gymnastics training, which I'm doing with, uh, uh, incredible coach named coach Chris Sommer, who's the former national team coach. And we're doing for the first time, I'm doing remote coaching. So I'm sending him videos. He's reviewing. We jump on the phone, et cetera. That's and uh, one of the series that I've been doing and I need to start doing more consistently is this knee sort of prehab rehabilitation uh, series. It's all body weight that focuses on strengthening, say, the ACL, the cruciate ligaments, et cetera, with these different types of weird looking squats. And I did them for, say, three weeks, just once or twice a week. Took maybe five minutes each session and it was incredible how more how much uh more stability i felt in my knees doing any type of movement uh any type of of walking hiking jumping and it highlighted for me that that must mean my knees were fucking unstable as hell beforehand if like within two or three weeks i felt a huge increase in stability which i guess is a symptom of just sitting down too much uh also, the way we move too, you know, I mean, our, our, our Western, you know, patterns of movement, in a lot of ways are not, um, uh, well, I guess everyone's pattern of movements are not very, they're kind of just like up, down, left, right. Yeah. Um, you know, computer, you know, bar. Yeah. There's dinner. not, there's not, there's not a lot of couch. There's TV. not much, there's not much lateral. There's not a lot of torsion, uh, of different types. Uh, and, you know, rotational exercise is pretty much, out the window for most folks. So then when you encounter that in any capacity and it's forced upon you, then you get injured. Yeah. Uh, do, do you, I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say there's some, there's a, there's a, some of the, like the way in, in Bagua, they isolate some movement uh, patterns. Might if I have some of your Were you? No, please. So, so. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they uh, and, and it's really just kind of an exercise in, in, uh, in balance and being able to, um, learn, you know, power versus, um, uh, resistance. Um, and you have what to, do you, what do you mean by that? Well, okay. So let's say you're, uh, let, let's say that you are, um, practicing, um, a, you know, a stance, let's mm-hmm. say just for, for lack of a better example, um, without going into too much detail and, and that stance, you feel very stable in that stance while you transition to another stance and you're, you know, undulating or rotating or going up and down changing levels but that's without pressure without resistance so let's say you take that same technique or stance or whatever and then you pressure test it and apply um, another human being to push on you or throw try to throw you while you do that same thing Mm -hmm. so you basically are pressure testing you know the reality of some of these movements and uh and you know you have to uh I mean, before you do that, you have to have a lot of, you know, time in solo practice with those 
movements or stances and you know repetition and all that stuff so you actually don't rip your knee out of socket or something so just don't go doing this at home until you practice a little bit but but the thing is is that it it brings a sense of reality to it because that's always the problem with chinese martial arts that you see is there's no reality to a lot of shit it's never it's very silly it's never tested under the circumstances in which you would need to use it (laughs) yeah or or against bigger people that or against real violence or against any of those things that you would, uh, you would need to actually make something truly effective. And, uh, and so, you know, that it, but the point was is that it develops your, you know, all of your connective tissue and all of your body. And I'm pretty sure the only reason that I, I can't, I can still walk is because of my early years of martial arts <laughs> in all of this kind of stance work and transition work and, and, uh, you know, that kind of like twisting and turning of the body and like Tai Chi and internal martial arts. It's very helpful for the body. I think that, I think there's something there and my interest in Tai Chi at one point was pretty close to zero just because I was so focused on the harder fight sports like Muay Thai and so on, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. And in the last, say, five years, my interest has really been piqued uh, by a friend of mine named Josh Waitzkin, who's been on uh, this. I'll just have like a podcast small world story real quick. So I get this text at one point from Matt Mullenweg, who's the uh, I guess he's the CEO of Automatic right now and was one of the lead developers of WordPress. And he goes, I was walking with my girlfriend through New York, it's like Central Park or somewhere. No, it wasn't Central Park. It was near the water. And he said, we saw this guy doing some weird martial arts stuff right on the water. And so I was commenting on it and how it looked really beautiful to my girlfriend. She said, well, you should walk up and say hi. So he walked up and said hi. And it was another person who'd been on the podcast, Josh Waitzkin, doing Tai Chi. Now, Josh was the basis for Searching for Bobby Fischer, this movie about this chess prodigy, which he was when he was a kid. But he's also uh, a, he was a push hands world champion. And then after that became the first black belt under Marcelo Garcia, who's like the Michael Jordan, Mike Tyson, Wayne Gretzky combined of Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. And, uh, I always associated Tai Chi with non martial applications, right? But he uses this and has, prescribed it to his parents who've seen fantastic results for uh, rehab, prehab, just life stability and well-being in general. So even though he has a tremendous amount of experience with BJJ at an extremely high level, he still does the Tai Chi on a regular basis, which has made me think uh, that there's, that I should probably make space for a practice of that type. I'll tell you what, there's a, there's a lot more to it than, than, uh, you know, most people, uh, give credit for because the reason is that there's no good Tai Chi really anywhere, right? So it's very. And Josh yeah, would agree with you, by the yeah, way. Yeah. And just yeah. imagine, you know, if you had no good, you know, jujitsu anywhere. Yeah. And, you know, then everybody would make fun of it because these guys would just get on the ground and get stomped. Yeah. Right. But, you know, if it's the same thing, it's the same, the same would apply to any kind of system. And, and so, but once you, if you, if you really, you know, happen to be lucky enough to stumble upon someone who's truly, really, great at the martial side of Tai Chi, then, you know, it's all, it's kind of like this immovable mountain thing. And, and, you know, my take on it is that in terms of like real, real, uh, applicable martial arts, which means being able to defend yourself against someone who's using real violence. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about sport, um, which is still very difficult, right? I mean, that's not, but, uh, but to really be able to defend yourself against real violence is a different kind of ball of wax, right? Um, and oftentimes that requires less, uh, 
less of a lot of things than a sport would, right? You don't need to train for 20 hours a day to be able to get to that point. You don't have to have amazing cardio necessarily. You know, a lot of things go out the window due to this kind of, um, uh, ability to evade. Right. And evasion is not in a, a large circle. It's really can be a very small thing. Like, let's say you, a simple example would be, um, let's say that you practice, um, standing with your knees bent a little bit, um, to the point to where you would, you know, fall over the first day. And for 20 years, you practice that same kind of standing against somebody trying to push you over. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, eventually you get to the point to where you can't be pushed over. Right. And you, you went through a series of different opponents and different people trying to, you know, throw you over, but that's all you practice forever. Right. And so Taiji develops that kind of skill, right. When it's done in the martial sense. Um, but then you're able to mobilize it. So you, let's say you take the static, you know, uh, starting point of being immovable. Immovable doesn't mean you're actually immovable. It means you're adjusting your body to the other person, right? And to their, their force that's coming towards you, you're adjusting a little bit, right? And it's not this whole, there's a lot of like, uh, you know, hokey pokey shit out there on people <laughs> that don't really, that say a right. philosophy, but there's no real applicable, uh, you know, reality to it. Um, so, uh, that's one thing. And the other thing is just kind of the, the, um, uh, ability to evade. Like if you're, if you have a, let's say you take, you know, a, a Thai boxer who, a Muay Thai guy who can kick really fucking hard and a guy who practices kicks every day is a professional Thai boxer. Um, what, what we have to realize is that the distance, there's just a distancing thing, right? At the point of impact of anybody's kick or punch or attack is, one place once they release that you know intention once the intention mo- leaves the you know the mind and goes into the body and the action is created and it's traveling towards your opponent there's a target there's an intended target if you can change yourself from being that intended target you know the origin of that and reroute yourself only a few inches then yep. all of that force goes away yep. right and so it's a, it's a, it's a simple kind of thing to say, but you know, just to be able to do that with one punch or one kick takes a lifetime to learn, right? Um, and I'm not saying I know these things. I'm just saying that that's, there's a couple simple truths that I've learned from it that, that, that are, uh, that, that's a couple. But, um, so yeah, so I think that, that, uh, Tai Chi is very applicable because, you know, I go out and practice with, uh, over the years, I practice some really amazing MMA guys, some really amazing jujitsu guys. Um, and, uh, you see a translation from this kind of traditional martial arts, um, but only very little. It's not like overall, you know, you can't just go get in the cage, you know, it's not, so, but there are, there are some really great things that I think that, you know, it'd be really interesting to see. I would love to see, uh, you know, professional fighters start to explore that a little bit. But the issue is that that to even get remotely efficient at those kinds of things, it takes at least 10 years of like daily practice. Yeah. Right. And so that might be the challenge. <laughs> so a, then, a, by then your career is over. It's a time budgeting <laughs> issue. The, uh, how, how old are you now? 36. 36. What advice would you give your 30 year old self if you could place us where you were and what you were doing at that time? <laughs> Um, I, you know, I, I think, uh, I think it would be to, um, take a step back, right? Take a step back, really slow down and really, uh, really think through what really, you know, matters in the long run, right? 
because we're, you know, a and lot of what time, were you, this is, what were you doing at the time when you were so 30? Well, but, well, my, my, but I guess that actually my 30 year old self, that's different. Cause that's when I just started Saison. Yeah. So I was doing the same thing I'm doing now. Mm-hmm. Um, only in a more kind of, uh, ridiculous way. But, um, I mean, my 20 year old self, 25 year old self. Sure. Let's do, bit, let's yeah. do 25. Yeah. yeah. You know, 25 year old self. Yeah. I mean, I think it would be to just really take a step back and, and, uh, and not get caught up in anything stupid because, you know, a lot of times when we're chasing success or what we think is success, like trying to, as a chef, you want to build a big name. You want to, um, you know, get three Michelin stars. You want to get the accolades. Um, but ultimately none of that shit matters. It matters in the beginning and it certainly matters along the way. But, but if you, if we all just take a step back and I think there's, um, a bigger lesson to be learned for the way that we operate as a society is, is to really focus on what really matters to us and is what is genuinely makes us happy. Then we'll travel down the right path, right? And we won't get sidetracked by, you know, uh, you know, tits and ass or, uh, whatever you, you know, fame and sports cars and all silly shit that you don't need. Yeah. And, uh, unless those are the things that really make you happy. Well, I mean, look, <laughs> cup two of those three. <laughs> <laughs> do make us happy, but they're, <laughs> but, but I, but I mean that, uh, you know, if what really makes you happy is getting in the woods, yep. then, you know, you focus, you're able to really take a step back and focus on quality. Maybe if you want to be a cook, you want to be a chef, uh, what kind of chef do you want to be? You want to be a, you want to be an Instagram chef or you want to be a, you know, a chef with real quality and skill that's respectable, you know, respected by the world, you know, for your, your ethos or something. So there's just, you know, I, I would say, um, get your head out of your ass. Probably that would be my summary. What were you, what were you getting, what were you distracted by or focusing on at 25 that you shouldn't have been? <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. Oh, my, uh, my parents-in-law don't hear this. Um, uh, no, it's, so. it's just like two people listen to this podcast. You're fine. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I was just, I, I was just cooking. Uh, oh, actually, you know, I was, I was a chef at a restaurant called Shea TJ. Uh, I don't, you know, the place in Mountain View. Yeah, sure. Uh, it's been there for like 30 years. Um, and, uh, I shortly after that got poached by, uh, Michael Mina to do some development work. Uh, I opened a restaurant restaurant for him down in the St. Regis in Orange County um, as a temporary gig and then went to work with him on kind of the, uh, just to learn business from him, right? I wanted to learn some business. I didn't know anything about business at all. And I wanted to see kind of how that um, operated and functioned as a restaurant group. Um, so a lot of it was like Vegas and partying, partying all the time and just, uh, just ridiculousness. I mean, we would go out after work, one and go home at sunrise and wake up at 4 p.m. and go back to like the kitchen the next day, just, co- and just immediately need like a whiskey because you're so hungover. <laughs> it was the only care cure. of the dog. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so th- that was a good few years of my life, just kind of going crazy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and because I, you know, I wasn't, all I did was train. So I didn't do that when I was younger. Like I had a period in my teenage years where I was a, a lunatic. And then I, I went back into training around 15 and, and pulled out of that. And then, uh, and then I didn't really even drink until I was 25. Um, after I got my chef show. Um, and so, you know, just made a couple, a couple of makeups for lost time. Yeah. The, uh, I, I, I feel like oftentimes reflecting back on my, high school career and college, uh, experience that if I had not had competitive sports, I mean, who, I would 
would have ended up in Skid Row or in a gutter or God knows where. Oh, for sure. If yeah, if I didn't have martial arts, I'd be dead in a gutter. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Uh, where would you like to have food that you have not yet had food? Um, it, the exciting food to me is, you know, the original peoples of wherever, um, whatever location. So if we go to, uh, you know, Australia and have, uh, some Aboriginal traditional food and kind of explore that side of things in, in, in nature and, and the same thing with anywhere else. So if you go to any country or any place and kind of, you know, exploring the, the natural foods that existed before, uh, commodification took place, that's what, I, that's what's very interesting to me. I was playing with, uh, had a lot of fun messing around with it. There's a guy named Cliff Hodges who's also in the four hour chef. He makes his own bows and arrows like from scratch and oh, his nice. hunted black bear <laughs> with his, uh, with his, with uh, his, I guess they're Osage bows. I want to say they're incredible, but, uh, he, uh, introduced me to cooking on fire. So he, he is a uh, outdoor survival expert, uh, and taught me how to build debris huts and whatnot. Knows how to track. Really interesting guy. You'd get a kick out of him. Lives in Santa Cruz mountains. And, he, uh, where was I going with this? Oh, he introduced me to acorn meal and making things out of acorns, which yeah. I looked into it at one point. Uh, it, it represented for certain indigenous, uh, North American tribes a substantial portion of their total calories, acorns. Yeah. And I got really, I read that somewhere, I yeah. got really interested in leaching acorns and making things out of acorns. They're flour. delicious. Yeah. Acorns they're, are delicious. Yeah. Really, really good. I mean, that's the thing about our food stuffs now is that we're, we're, uh, there's so many amazing things. And that's kind of what Saison does at the moment is that we're, you know, it's just exploring what's here, the native foods. I mean, what is, what exists really at a, at a really, you know, incredible, uh, quality. And, uh, there's all kinds of shit here. There's, I mean, like we get, you know, we set up a program with fishermen where we get only live fish in our tanks, right? They bring us fish that's alive or we don't want it. And, um, that way we can kill it a certain way. They kid you may, um, and control the process. And, and same thing with like all the commercial fisheries, uh, or, or the, the vegetables, the produce. We have wild kiwis in the woods of Marin. There's wild uh, kiwis. Yeah. I mean, there's acorns, there's ginseng root growing, there's, um, berries, there's all kinds of crazy shit around. There's uh diamond turbo in the waters here. There's pink scallops, there's monkey face eels. So we're, we're exploring. Those are some kind of funky looking things. Man. And they're really delicious too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like you just cook it. Let's say you cooked it like unagi or something, right? Yeah. It's delicious. Yeah. So there's all these amazing things around in, in our, in each location around the country. And, and the Pacific happens to be amazing because of the ocean, but the, the, um, you know, the cold climate of the ocean, but, um, that's a very exciting kind of food, right? To just really kind of look at what's around us, like really explore what's around us. Um, it's nothing new. It's been done. It was being done before all this other shit was being done. And so, but that's really where great food comes from. Great food comes from not from growing it on a farm, but from really exploring the wild and finding, you know, that kind of reference point for flavor, right? Like you find the, you find the best, um, fish during the best season or the best, uh, you know, bear during, after eating the blueberries, 
uh, during the rights, you know, so there's all these, uh, and the same thing with produce and all that other stuff. So those are, that's a very exciting, uh, exciting way to cook. Uh, what, what, pretty soon I'm going to have a restaurant that only does that. Uh, it's it's cool. going to take six hours to get to. And, uh, maybe I'll just do it for one table night. And, uh, you know, maybe you're part of the hunting process. Who knows? Or, you know, go out and catch our trout. And, I'm in. Yeah. If you yeah. need a, if you need a, a guinea pig, yeah. uh, to, uh, to take it for a test drive, count me in. The, now you, you did, this makes me think a little bit of an experiment that you did. Uh, I'm not sure how recently this was, but the chef's table, uh, rotation that you did with, uh, help me out with the name here. Jiro. Jiro, yeah. But not the Jiro, not the Jiro that Jiro, people would associate. Jiro. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Uh, but Jiro, who w- was cooking, I guess, previously in Noe Valley. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. He, uh, but he, he was trained in Tokyo. He was a sushi chef in Tokyo. Um, and, uh, I just, I love his sushi. He has a, you know, he has that timing. You know, he has a sensibility to the, the flavor of his sushi. And, and, and unfortunately in San Francisco, there's no good sushi at all. And, uh, I really wish there were, but there isn't. And, uh, so that's why I fell in love with his sushi because it was so delicious. Had the warm, the right, the rice was a little warmer, had the right texture. Uh, you know, the thickness of the cuts of the fish, the way, the direction in which you cut against the grain or with the grain, um, you know, the balance of the seasoning, just everything was there. And so for a period of time, I don't know how long it was, but he, uh, would seat how many people per night? Eight people. Eight. Yeah. So I built this little, for those who don't know, I built this little, uh, chef's counter out next to Saison and, uh, it was, it was, um, or behind Saison. And it was, uh, eight seats and, um, there were no turns. There was no real, um, commodity to the situation, I guess. You know, re- re- no turns meaning, well, so, it, so somebody you, wouldn't get up and get replaced right, by another diner. Right, exactly. And, and in today's real estate, for the cost of renting a place, paying for labor, um, you know, all these other things, insurances and taxes and all that shit, you have to do more than one seating, right? You have to, you know, get as many people in there as you can, which is a very sad state of restaurants. Um, especially when you're trying to, you know, do things that are really amazing or give people a great experience. Um, but, uh, so this was just a little eight seat workshop essentially. And so he cooked in there for a little while. We would do some collaboration dinners. Um, and it was really great. Um, but then I realized we're still in the city and you, you know, you can't, there's only so much you can do on a busy street with a dump truck driving by, you know, so, <laughs> so, uh, so I, I've been working on, uh, some new stuff and, and, uh, uh, one day I'll be able to tell you about it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, why the eighties music? You always have great eighties music playing, at least in my experience so far. Yeah. Uh, what's it, it, it just fun. It, yeah. It's a, it's a restaurant that's in the, it's pleasure. It's about pleasure. It's about enjoyment. It's about people coming in. I know not everybody's going to like 80 music, but the substantial majority of our, our subset of diners that come in, mm-hmm. uh, like, you know, that kind of, uh, 80 music and, and it's just fun. Yeah. It, that's the only reason it's just about fun. Speaking so, of fun, Molly oh, just got, um, so Chester is going to have playmate here. There she is. Oh, tail smashing the cups. We almost went, almost went for a yard sale with the cups. Yeah. So, so it's really, it's really just about the whole, the whole reasoning of Saison was about those, the essential nature of a hospitality experience. The food being what we talked about earlier. Uh, the, um, the 80s music being fun. You know, the, the things you pick up in your hands feeling good. The, the seat being comfortable. The service being warm and real. 
You know, you know, so that, that's kind of wh- wh- why the 80s music came about. Well, it, what, what I love about the, uh, the and 80s plus when you have a couple of glasses of wine and you can cook Well, I was going to say that I've had, I've brought, I've, I've taken a few friends to Cezanne and, uh, they've always, they've always had questions about the 80s music and then they get a few dishes in, maybe a glass or two of wine and they're like, you know, this music's perfect. I really think this music is extremely soothing to this experience. And, uh, I always have to ask people when they, when, because I've been in San Francisco for so long and I get, questions about places to go to eat. And I always have to ask, you know, what's your budget and what's the occasion? Because Saison's, you know, it's a higher end. Higher end, I mean, I'm grasping for a better adjective. It's expensive. It's an expensive. Comparatively to other places. Yeah, Yeah. it's a comparatively expensive place. But for an anniversary or something like that, uh, or just a special experience, I think it's it's always been my go-to. On the opposite end of the spectrum... If I'm like, if you want a really filthy, delicious burrito in the mission, then I think El Farolito. If you want to like also have a conversation with a couple of meth heads, then that is the spot to go. That's my preferred uh, choice of meal. Meal conversation. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, our dogs are playing, folks. But uh, so, Joshua, we could keep talking forever. Where can people find you online on the socials? Learn more about what you're up to. Uh, I think your Instagram is fantastic. Also, if you want to see a lot of very, very peculiar and delicious ingredients, then that's a good place to see you. But where, where can people find you? Yeah. J, uh, Instagram is Jay Skeins, J S K E N E S. Almost forgot my own spot. Jay Skeins on Instagram or, or uh, on Twitter. I think it's uh Saison SF. Saison SF. Yeah. And the website also is uh, Saison SF.com. And, uh, I will put all this in the show notes, folks, including links to anything that we might've mentioned. Our dogs are having a blast. Speaking of joy. Uh, so you can find the show notes at fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast. Uh, Josh, thanks for taking the time, man. Thanks for having me here, man. It's yeah, exciting. We'll let's go have, hunting now. We'll have some, yeah. let's go hunting and have some wine, uh, in that order. And, uh, to everybody listening, we're going to play with the dogs. And until next time, thank you for listening. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out, and just drop in your email and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it.